In this lesson, we're going to look at defamation. Now, defamation is an interesting topic in relation to the law of thought, primarily because it doesn't distinctly deal with components of negligence or injury, be it psychiatric or physical. Rather, defamation deals with damage to reputation. Very simply, we can look at defamation as an untrue statement of fact which refers to the claimant and causes damage in the form of reputation loss. So as such, we'll look at the requirements in order for a claim in defamation to be held. First of all, the defendant must have made an untrue statement of fact. On the one hand, this untrue statement cannot be merely causing anger or upset in relation to the claimant, the person who's claiming, as was held in Burkhoff and Birchill. It has to be a material fact or something that's completely untrue that causes a reputational harm to the claimant. But whatever statement that harmed his reputation needs to be held in such regard amidst right-thinking people, as was held in Byrne and Dean. What was held in Dweck and Macmillan and Tolly and J.S. Fry is that an innuendo is sufficient to sustain a claim in defamation. The statement must also refer to the claimant. The defendant need not be aware of the claimant in the first place, yet he must in some way, shape or form have referred to the claimant, as in Halton and Jones, even mistakenly, as in Newstead and London Express. Now, it's worthwhile noting that defamation comes in one of two forms. Either it could be a libel or slander. Libel is when it is in written form, and slander when it is spoken. In relation to libel, there need not be any proof of damage. As long as it is published, as long as it's in the public domain, it is sufficient to sustain a claim. However, in relation to slander, the claimant must bring forward evidence. There are a few exceptions to this rule, for instance, where the defendant has allegedly claimed that the claimant is a convict or that the claimant has some form of disease like AIDS or that the claimant is unfit for his profession. There need not be uh, any evidence. Now, in line with Libel, it must be noted that whatever a defamatory statement that's been claimed, must be published. Now, in relation to publication, Hutt and Hutt stated that as long as the defendant was aware that his acts could lead to publication in some form, it is sufficient to hold him liable. In relation to defamation, which deals primarily with the freedom of speech, we must also consider that there is a critical analysis which is required in relation to policy. An act that has played a pivotal role in shaping the law of the UK is the Human Rights Act of 1998. Articles 8 and 10 specifically deal with components related directly with defamation, as in the right to privacy and the right to free speech. So whatever decisions that court makes are in relation to a balance between these policy initiatives. There are a few defences which are available to a defendant in relation to a claim being brought in defamation. First of which is, obviously, if the defendant is able to prove that what was stated was in fact justified, that it was in fact true. 
in Alexander and Northeastern Railways, not every detail was required, only that the statement as a whole was accurate. Fair comment is another defense that a defendant can rely on, and quite simply, what this signifies is that it's opinion or public interest. A third and often complicated defense that can be relied upon is privilege. Absolute privilege is afforded to uh, persons of power, let's say, uh, those who are covered or governed by legislative authority, uh, for instance, in parliament. Qualified authority, on the other hand, is either granted by way of statute or common law. Now, in relation to statute, you have Section 15 of the Defamation Act of 1996, which states that there must be some opportunity provided to the claimant to respond or to explain whatever claim. This relates most often to publications in newspapers where they might be running a story of some sort related to the claimant and it is required by law that uh, the newspaper goes to the extent of inquiring from the person the story is about whether it's in fact true. In relation to common law, we see in Adam and Ward that whatever claim that's been made, whatever statement rather that's been made, must interest uh, any party, must interest the claimant as well as the greater public. And in Croucher and English, it was held that where the story or where the statement relates to a crime, that it relates and it interests every party and that there need not be a specific parameter outlined. But having said that, in Downtex and Flatley, court held that it cannot be with malice. One of the most important cases in relation to privilege can be seen uh, in Reynolds and Times newspapers where the conduct of the media was brought into question. Uh, it's a string of cases as well as a string of articles that uh, sprung from that particular case. So have a look at that and there'll be a few links to uh, some recent developments as well. The last section that we are going to look at is in reference to the fast-moving nature of defamation. There has been a string of case law that has come about primarily due to media outlets uh, making allegedly defamatory statements. But it is wise to have a look at these cases as well as the articles that go along with them in order to enrich your examination answers. So, for instance, in Wainwright and Home Office, uh, it was noted that there is no privacy law in the UK, and there's a huge argument that's going on at the moment uh, as to whether privacy law exists in the United Kingdom. Uh, in Baturina and Times newspapers, court held that UK has become a hotspot for libel tourism. So that was defamation. To round off our syllabus in relation to these lessons on tort, next we'll have a look at occupier's liability.